Our Father, we give you praise. We thank you for today. We magnify your name. We bless you because you are God. We exalt you because you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We thank you for gathering us together again once again. Father, we thank you for all that you've done so far in today's service. Father, we pray that as we go into your word, that you speak to us by yourself in Jesus' name. In Jesus' precious name, we pray. Can we open our Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 8? Romans 8, I read from verse 1. It says, I'm stopping at verse 8, by the way. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that he was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do not mind, do mind the things of the flesh rather. For they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit, for to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can it be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Amen. So, we've spent quite some time on the book of Romans and I remember right from the beginning of this series, I had been talking about Romans chapter 8. I've been talking up the chapter in some way. And I had said that Romans chapter 8 is kind of the heart of the entire book. Every single thing that is said in Romans chapter 8 is a reflection of all the things that Paul said before, or rather a it's, it's, it's bringing all the things that he has said before to an end. It's like, okay, this is the conclusion of the matter. But there are other things that are said in Romans chapter 8 that also set the tone for the things that Paul would discuss after to conclude this letter. So in a lot of ways, I call it the heart of the book. It's kind of smack in the middle-ish. Because there are 16 chapters and it's chapter 8. So, um, it, in a lot of ways, captures a lot of the heart of the entirety of this book. And we're finally here. So, in chapter 7, we looked at a Paul who opened his heart to us and spoke to us 
about the wretchedness of a man who is trying to please God without the right tools. And what, what I mean when I say he did not have the right tools essentially is a man who is trying to please God without having the Spirit of God in him. Yes, he has the law, he knows the law, but he is incapable of obeying that law. So he finds himself in a vicious cycle. And we ended that chapter with Paul saying things like, Oh, wretched man I am, who will save me from this body of death? And Paul ends that chapter by saying that he thanks God for Jesus Christ, who was able to come and break that cycle by giving his life. Because now Paul is no more stuck in that cycle. Paul is no more the man who he was, a man who grew up with the law, a man who lived all, all his life to become someone who would be a teacher and an administrator of the law, but yet couldn't keep the law to the letter. And he starts to talk about a way that is better. He starts to talk about grace. Because essentially now, Paul is a different person. Because his nature has changed, he doesn't have a problem pleasing God anymore. And most importantly, he is not being condemned anymore. So he starts chapter 8 by making probably one of the most popular declarations in Romans and maybe the New Testament. I remember a song that follows this Romans 8, 1 and 2. Um, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And verse 2, for the Lord of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Oh, there is therefore now no condemnation. I think that's done when. I think that's done when. Extremely popular song. It's such a profound statement to make. Because when we speak about condemnation, condemnation essentially comes to a man that does not know Christ Jesus. Both by the state of who he is, in that because he is unregenerated, his very nature condemns him. Because he is separated from God, his very nature condemns him or her. Because they can't please God. And secondly, that person is also condemned by God because God is just. And God cannot behold or stand iniquity or sin. And for that reason, because that man still has that nature, that man cannot stand before the presence of God. So that man 
is condemned. But that's such a downer to think about. Because that's not even the angle that I was speaking about this evening. What we are speaking about is a theme of rejoicing. Because essentially Paul starts this chapter by saying that condemnation does not exist anymore for me. And for as many people who are now in Christ Jesus. And he tells us why. He says the reason why is because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit of life, essentially, that phrase is grace. And I remember that when I was speaking to us about grace and the law in the last teaching, I said Jesus coming to fulfill the law and not abolishing it means that he came, essentially, to transform the law in its incomplete state into something that is totally different. Because the law was powerless in taking away the nature of sin. So the law could not take away the nature of sin from man. But the law could identify sin in man. And because of that, the law being the law only led to what? Sin and death. But the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is grace. Because essentially... Every sin and death has been defeated by Jesus because he has paid the price for sin and death. And as long as we've accepted him, we're in a place where we can now please God. We can now please him. We can now have a relationship with him freely. And Paul goes on to say some things that he has already mentioned before, but he says them a bit more clearly. And then he said that what, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. What could the law not do? The law could not what? Save man from sin. He says what? God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. So a condemnation has happened. The reason why you are not condemned anymore in Christ Jesus is because Christ has condemned sin in your flesh. He took the price and paid it on your behalf. And he says what? That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So essentially, Paul is continuing what he said in chapter 7. Because in chapter 7, he said was, the law is good. The law is righteous. The law is not the problem. It's just that. Because the law cannot prevent man from sinning. The law cannot stop that nature of man from sinning. The law cannot take sin from man. The law can only point out sin. Even if the letter of the law is directing man towards the right thing, man does not have the capacity to do the right thing. So essentially, the righteousness of the law could not be produced in man. But now he's saying that what? The righteousness of the law is now fulfilled in every one of us. 
Because Christ has paid that price for us. So, what are the laws of God? God says we shall have no words. Even if you want to look at the Ten Commandments and all the other things that Moses spoke, that were the heartbeat of God in the Old Testament. But let's use the Ten Commandments as a yardstick, as an example. It's not the definition of the entirety of the law, but it's a yardstick. So, what is what is what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that thou shalt not serve any other god before me. Thou shalt not make for yourself a graven image. Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's household. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Um, there's a commandment I'm looking for that's always fascinating. Honor your father and your mother. Yes, yes. Honor your parents. All these things that Moses gave, ten in number. If you pick them one by one, what's Paul saying? Paul is saying that the fact that Israel had knowledge of all these things does not mean that they had the capacity to do them. The fact that Israel knew that they should not kill and they should not steal and that they should not make for themselves any image, did it stop them from doing any of these things? It didn't stop them, yet they knew. So essentially, it was impossible for the righteousness of those things that God had told them to do, because those things that God had instructed them to do and not to do were righteous things. They were right. They were the right things. Do not do this. Do not do this. Do not have any other God except me. They were good things. They were things that were right for man, and there were things that pleased God. Yet man did not have the ability to be able to benefit from the righteousness of the law because they could not keep it. So what did Christ do? Christ came and he took on the condemnation you were supposed to face. And he paid the price for us and restored us back to God so that the righteousness of the law can now be imputed on us. But it was given to us with conditions. And the first condition he wrote here is what? He said, Who walk, this is verse 4, that the righteousness of the law may be fulfilled in us. Who walk not after the flesh, but what? After the Spirit. So I guess my question here is, at least the first time I read this, and I read this rather sarcastically, the first thing I thought about was, wait, Paul, I thought you were talking about all the beautiful things that Jesus has done. Why are you all of a sudden changing mouth and speaking about walking not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit? Essentially, what I thought rather sarcastically was, this Paul is trying to scam us again. Because 
From the beginning, he had been speaking about the beautiful things that Jesus has done. The wonderful victory that Jesus has done. He has been talking to us about how imperfect the law was. How there had to be something else. How, yes, it's not like the law was bad. It was just not good enough. Because he could not do what man needed. He showed man his weaknesses. But he didn't give man the power to overcome those weaknesses. Which is a problem. And so Jesus came and what fixed that problem. And you're speaking about that and you're talking to me about how now the righteousness of the law can be imputed in me. And the next thing you say is, those who do not walk what? according to flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. That walk has nothing to do with Jesus. That's the first thing that hit me when I read it. I said, wait, he has gone back to what I need to do again. Because when he's talking about those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, who is doing the walk? It's me and you and any other Christian that exists. And that brings me to the heart of what I want to discuss today. Everything I've said before now is partly a recap of chapter 7. And partly a brief explanation of the conclusion of the thought process of chapter 7 into chapter 8. But when he starts to speak about this walk, he's pivoting a bit. Because right now, he's no more speaking about the deficiency of the law and the finished work that Jesus has done based on grace. He has now started to talk about what you and I need to do to make sure that we continue to live in the victory that God has purchased for us through Jesus on the cross, which is encapsulated by that first verse, saying what? There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's the reason why I titled today's talk, I titled it Walk, Live, and Think. And the reason why is because when you read from verse 5 to verse 8, you will see that walking, living, and thinking, when Paul talks about the mind, come into play when Paul is speaking about this victory of what? No condemnation. So I read from verse 4 again. It says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For they that are after the flesh do not mind the things of the flesh. Do mind rather the things of the flesh. But they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is subject, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither can it be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Amen. So, I while I meditated on this, I described Paul's speaking about walking 
as our day-to-day because you walk by taking steps, right? So I described Paul speaking about the walk, about our day-to-day relationship with God through the Holy Spirit because he has been talking about us walking in the Spirit and not in the flesh. While I described living and thinking, I described living as essentially what controls your life and thinking about the preoccupation of your mind and we would realize or find out that you cannot separate the live from the think in that what controls your life is usually a function of the preoccupation of your mind. And that's one of the reasons why the Bible tells us that what? As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Because the definition of a man's life is always first based on the preoccupation of his or her mind. And we have all of this reflected in these verses. So the walk, I want to speak about the walk, the day-to-day. And... This verse reminded me of another verse in scripture written by Paul, very similar to this. And we have a couple of verses there that are extremely popular. But I want us to go to Galatians chapter 5, from verse 16 to 26. And I'm going to point out something that I found extremely interesting while reading Galatians. Even after I've read this portion of the Bible quite a number of times. I think one of the things that I've said when we've talked about Bible study here is how when we are making lists or we are when we are reading through lists in scripture, we should stop ourselves from just breezing through the list simply because it's a list. We'll find out a lot in scripture. Galatians 5, 16 to 26. This I say then, walk in the spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye, led, if ye be led by the spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifested, which are are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envying, murders, drunkenness, reveling, and such like of which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lust. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, 
envy one another. Amen. So the linchpin from which I will start to like speak about this walk is I want to I want to first focus on verse twenty-five. Verse twenty-five says, "If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit," and that is the first sign that perhaps all these things that Paul listed here, he was most likely, definitely speaking to people in the church. Because what Paul is debating here is not whether or not we live in the Spirit. Okay, he's not debating that I have accepted Jesus and the Holy Spirit has come into my life and I am now a spiritually regenerated being because my spirit is no longer dead to sin but alive in Christ. What he is debating here is he's saying if we live in the spirit let us also what walk in the spirit. What he is saying is that it is quite possible for you to be the first and not be the second. If it was a given that all those who live in the spirit are definitely walking in the spirit, he would not even have to make that statement. True or false? True. So, that's why I'm starting there before we now walk it back. I also found something else here really fascinating. I'm not going to spend time on the list of habits or things that he mentioned because that's not particularly the point. The point is that what the flesh has are works and what the spirit has is fruit. Did we get the distinction when we were reading he said, but the works of the flesh, that's W-O-R-K-S, are, then he made a list. And when he got to speaking about the Spirit, he did not say, but the works of the Spirit are. He said, but the fruit of the Spirit. Then he listed what the fruit of the Spirit is. That's extremely fascinating. And I want to say there's a reason for this. What the flesh primarily manifests are external behavior that is born out of corruption that is present within the body and the soul. What I mean is everything that is listed here, right, is a product of man's body his emotions, his will, 
and his mind. So, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, violence is usually a combination of two or more of all these things that I've mentioned that reside within the soul and what? And the body. And they produce works, things that can, that have external evidence. Some might be hidden for like, you might not see it written on the person's face. But essentially, what will happen is that anyone who is walking after the flesh will easily produce these things. And because the innermost part of man is his spirit, the outermost part of man is his body, and the most relevant part of man that other men can identify with is the man's soul. What makes, even if, people, even if two people are identical twins, what would make me differentiate A from B is personality, behavior, probably the way one talks. Those are externalities. Those are things that are easily produced from the life of man. Because essentially, the flesh never produces anything that has anything to do with the real man that God has put inside there. Because the real man is what's man's spirit. And as long as man's spirit is not involved in what is coming out of the life of man, that thing would always be shallow and not a true expression of God's original plan for that man. So everything that is listed here are things that the soul and the body produce as works simply because they have no spirit to guide them. An unregenerated man would always be what? Unregenerated. I'm still going to speak about the believer that is producing these things. But I'm first speaking now about someone who doesn't know Jesus and has not given his life. These are natural things that will be produced towards in what? His life. Simply because it's his soul and what? His body. That's what we call the flesh. So I just described natural man. I want to speak about spiritual man for a bit. Then I will speak about the Christian who definitely is living in the spirit but might not be walking in the spirit. He says that what? But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Fruit, even on earth, is extremely difficult to come by. Fruit takes time. 
It's not the minute that you plant a seed. No matter what kind of crop it is, it will take some time. Now, it all depends on whether it's an annual or a perennial crop or a crop that takes biannual two years. All of that is agricultural stuff. But in general note, it's not the day that you plant the seed that you start eating fruit. True or false? True. What does this say about what Paul is telling us here? Paul essentially is making a comparison between something that in the natural state of a man just being who he is without God. He's making the comparison between something that man being who he is because he's living in the flesh and because essentially all he has is his soul and his body for guidance. He's just naturally going to produce all these works, right? He's making a direct comparison and saying, okay, so don't do this. Instead of doing this, if that is option A, you should do what's option B instead. But what he is giving us as option B is not something that is as easily produced as the things that he has listed in option A. Yet, he's saying that both of them are the choices that are before us. So he's saying that what? The works of the flesh are these, this, 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 this. Essentially, anybody who is in the flesh would easily just be producing these things because naturally, based on his or her nature, he or she would find himself doing some of these things. And anyone who has come to Jesus truly, myself included, would be able to testify to you that when I was not with Jesus, I can count a bunch of these things that were just in my life that nobody taught me. True or false? Yet, you've come to Jesus and you find that when you come to Jesus and you accept Jesus into your life, it's not like automatically you start to walk in joy or peace or love or you just start to just produce self-control. You find that instead what starts to happen is that you have to first cultivate a relationship with the Holy Spirit first. Which is basically the seed that has been planted because the Holy Spirit has been planted in you through salvation, right? So once you give your life to Christ, the Holy Spirit is in you. But you have to cultivate a relationship with Him through prayer, through study of the Word, through getting actively close to Jesus, through letting Him define your experiences in life, through walking with Him day by day, before you now start to see these things budding in your life slowly but surely. 
You have to go through that process before you start to see these fruits being produced in your life. So it's not the day that someone gives his life to Christ that he will say to himself, oh yes, now, you know, I'm producing love, I'm producing joy. We talked about peace on Sunday. I'm producing peace. Oh, I'm long-suffering now. I have gentleness. I have goodness. I'm producing meekness. I'm producing temperance. It's not that day. These things have to take time. You have to relate with God and let him start to groom you to be able to produce these things in your life because fruit takes time. And fruit is a product of the walk with the Holy Spirit, which is why we say the walk represents the day-to-day relationship that we have with the Spirit of God. Because it's only when you relate with Him on a day-to-day that these things can now start to bud in your life as a product of the experience in that relationship. So the question is, why? When I say why, like why, in quotes, is the right option? Why does it feel, why does it feel, for lack of a better way of putting it right now, why does it feel harder than the other option? Is for one simple reason. You will never walk away from a God that you've taken the time to build a relationship with. If it's the day that you give your life to Christ, that a lot of these things just came easily to you without getting to actually know this God through his spirit, one day you walk away from him. What we need to understand is that in the heart of God, his primary focus and goal is relationship with us. Jesus has purchased the relationship for us. He has given us the Holy Spirit to facilitate the relationship. And until that relationship gets facilitated, we will not truly reap the benefits of knowing him. Positionally, we still belong to him. 
we have the life of the Spirit in us. But for us to truly, truly come into full possession of what God has for us, both on earth and in heaven, we have to walk with him. So before I move to live and think, I want to talk about the third set of people that Paul is speaking about here. So essentially, the first set of people I talked about was the natural man, a man who doesn't know Jesus at all, who these works of the flesh are just natural to him. It's just what he will do. And we probably have those people around us. It's just who they are. And when like when they say it's who they are, don't doubt them. Don't they're not lying. It's really who they are. Yet you will find these things, you will find envy, you will find wrath, you will find hatred, you will find strife. These things will naturally just come and be produced in their lives because it's who they are. Now, we've talked about a man who is a spiritual man, someone who has the life of the Spirit, but who is also walking in the Spirit, who is taking that day-by-day journey with God and letting God prune him, letting God deal with him, letting God take some things away from his life so that the Holy Spirit in him can produce fruit in his life. The heart of the matter is this. Paul is saying that anyone who does not walk with God through his Spirit, although he has received the life of the Spirit, anyone who chooses not to walk with him, anyone who does not see the importance of for some reason is not aware or conscious, or maybe they are aware or conscious, but they are not just going through that day-by-day relationship with him. They will still produce the works of the flesh. Why would they produce the works of the flesh? It's simple. It's simply because we said that before, when a man gives his life to Christ, what changes is that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within that man. When the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within that man, that man's spirit comes alive. And that man's spirit comes alive as a result of the Spirit of God being in that man, the same way that it was in Jesus when he was on this earth, the same way that it was in Adam when God breathed into him. So that man has returned to the state that Adam was before Adam fell. However, the person that brought about that return is the Holy Spirit. And any human being who has come back to God and now has the life of the Spirit, but refuses to listen to the Holy Spirit, will still be controlled primarily by his flesh. 
And that's the reason why he says what? The flesh lusteth against the spirit. The spirit lusteth against the flesh. And the what? They are contrary to one another. They cannot agree. So, if he wasn't speaking to people that already had spirits that were alive, he would not be talking about a clash. The reason why he's speaking about a clash is because he's speaking to people who have already accepted Jesus, whose spirits have already been regenerated. And he's making them aware that there's still a clash that is going on. And the only way to defeat your flesh is to walk in the Spirit. So I'm going to move to live and think. Like I said before, you can't separate living from thinking. You cannot separate what defines and controls a man's life from the way he thinks. Live and think has been a constant theme throughout Romans. It was at the beginning, in Romans chapter eight, um, chapter one rather, verse twenty-eight, when Paul said, "And even as they did not retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over." to reprobate mind, to do those things which are not convenient. What Paul is saying here is what? He's saying that because man made a choice in the way he was living, God essentially gave them over to the way of thinking that matched the way man had chosen to live. So because man chose to live without the knowledge of God, God gave them over God did not say he gave them a reprobate mind. I mean, the scripture did not say he gave them a reprobate mind. It says he gave them over to a reprobate mind. That means that a reprobate mind is the mind that is deserving of people who have made the choice to what? To push the knowledge of God out of their lives. Essentially, what that scripture is saying is, God left them to the natural consequence of the choice that they have made for the life that they are chosen to live, which is what? A reprobate mind. So they got rid of the knowledge of God, and God just left them to a reprobate mind. And... A little expo into the future because we're not there yet. But if you check Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He's saying that what something has to happen to the mind. And when that thing happens to the mind, it will naturally help that man to be able to do something. Essentially, the way that man lives will be a natural consequence of the choices that he has made with his mind. He says, renew your mind and you'll be able to prove. So you cannot separate what? Living from thinking. You cannot separate what defines or controls a man from his ex- from what he or she gives his or her mind to. 
And Paul is telling us that what? We should not be carnally minded. So, bringing you back to Romans 8, before I open the book of Philippians, Paul has spoke, spoken about the walk, right? <clears throat> and he has spoken about the walk, which is the daily relationship with the Holy Spirit. But what Paul is saying is that that daily relationship with the Holy Spirit is not necessarily enough. In that, something has to happen to the way we think and what we give our minds to. Those two things need to flow together in order to ensure that we are truly, truly living above condemnation. And to speak on that, I'll open up Philippians 4 and I'll read from verse 8. It says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. And verse 9, those things which you have both learned, received, and heard, and seen in me, do, and the God of peace will be with you. How many of us realize that every single thing that is mentioned in that verse 8 has something to do with God talks about truth talks about honesty talks about justice talks about purity talks about things that are full of love lovely talks about goodness things that have a good report Talks about virtue or character. Talks about praise. And it says, anything that fits into all these categories, think of these things. You know, I've, I've thought about these scriptures a lot, this scripture rather a lot. And I remember that when I read it earlier as a Christian, I was reading it with an analytical mind. And analysis is not wrong per se. But I was reading it with a mindset in that I was trying to figure out, okay, it's almost like I was trying to make a mental list of, you know, what are the things that are good? What are the things that have a good report? What are the things that are honest? What are the things that are pure? What are the things that are true? It doesn't work like that. That's what analysis will give you. What revelation will give you, though, is that Paul is building a safety net. Essentially, what Paul is doing is 
he give he's giving this list as a check not a check for but a check against and i'll explain what that means he ended by saying that everything that you've received and learned and heard and seen us do do as well as the next verse and the peace of god will be with you what's the difference between check for and check against check for means that i need to check it and use it as what as a yardstick for what i am to think about right check against is when i am thinking about something i'm not like oh does that conform to what is written here essentially it's unrealistic to expect that you would have to come back to this verse every single time that you think because you are always thinking what Paul is saying, especially how he, how he ends it in the next verse, speaking about the peace of God. What Paul is saying is that as long as God is the preoccupation of your mind, you would find that these things that are listed here will be the natural characteristics or properties or ingredients of the things that occupy your thoughts as long as god and his kingdom and christ and his spirit are the preoccupation of your mind then naturally your thoughts will be pure naturally you will think about truth Naturally, you think about things that have a good report. Naturally, the things that you think about will be praiseworthy. Naturally, the things that you think about would have virtue. They'll be virtuous. However, if your mind is not preoccupied with Christ and the things of God, or you fall into a moment of weakness, which can happen to anyone at any time, when you start to think the wrong things, you can always come back here and ask yourself, are these things that I am thinking about currently, are they true? Essentially, when the devil whispers something to you about yourself and your life, and he makes you believe something about you that does not conform with the word of God and what he has said about you and where he is taking you, and probably you went through a phase or something happened to you or you just had a bad day when it felt like everything wasn't working and the devil was making you feel like nothing else is going to work and those are the words that are in your heart it's a moment of weakness right it is a moment of weakness and at that point in time you have forgotten everything about faith you have forgotten all the faith confessions you made like that week or probably the weeks before and essentially, the question you ask yourself in the context to this verse is, are those thoughts true? Are they? They are not. Is it true that there's no way for you anymore? Is it true that all the doors are closed for you? Is it true that you will never make something out of your life? Is it true that 
essentially you are finished now. Is that the truth? Does that resonate with what God says or is saying about you? The answer is no, right? And if the answer is no, what that means is you should not be thinking of those things. You should not preoccupy your mind because it is not true. And you can apply that to everything here. There are some thoughts that are not honest. There are some thoughts that are definitely not pure. There are some thoughts that are not lovely. There are some thoughts that are not of good report. There are thoughts that are extremely unjust. Justice not by the world's standard, but justice by scriptural standard. Because justice is not by popular opinion. Justice is about what the word of God says about the matter. And there are some thoughts that irrespective of what your your flesh or your mind might be saying towards that issue, they are unjust before God. So that's what I mean by a check against and not a check for, in that you don't need to memorize the scripture and start to make a list of categories of thoughts that you must think or not think. What you need to know is that all these things listed here represent an aspect of the personality of God reflected in Jesus, given to us through his spirit. Because God is a just God, and God is pure, and God is full of love, and God is a good God that does good things. So obviously, the things that would come out of God are things of good report. And God is virtuous because God is full of virtue. And God is worthy to be praised. He's full of praise. And God is honest. And as long as we preoccupy our minds with the things that are related to our God and connected to our God, as long as we make it an active duty, a conscious duty to make sure that we guard the things that come into our minds, the things that we let fester in our thoughts. As long as we have the scripture as a check against thoughts that do not conform to God's will and thoughts that do not essentially represent our God, then we will not be carnally minded. And you might ask yourself, or you might even ask me, Billy, all these things that you are saying, they have nothing to do with all those plenty, plenty sins that Paul will be listing in, <laughs> in those chapters. Like, what's the connection between simply, in quotes, believing a lie? Like the example I gave, what's the connection between oh, believing what the devil says about you, in quotes, being the worst, or you not being able to make it? Or what's the connection between believing a lie from the devil or a lie in your heart, or thinking on just thoughts, 
me you might say okay there's a connection with thinking impure thoughts because usually impure to us we always think of sexually related stuff it was not limited to that so what's 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 the connection between you know thinking things that have a bad report or thinking things that are unvirtuous or thinking things that are not praiseworthy what's the connection between that and that list that we read that Paul gives even in Galatians about how you know the flesh produces this essentially the carnal man who produced this the connection is simple the root of all sin of all wrongdoing of all things that take us away from God's presence. The root of everything is unbelief. It's unbelief that leads us to disobedience. Because that was that was what affected them in the garden. That still was affecting man till tomorrow. And the reason why all these thoughts that we just mentioned, things that are pure, things that are good, the reason why the opposite of these things would eventually lead a man down the path of some of those grievous things that seem unconnected to these simple thoughts is that ultimately what the devil wants is to get you to stop, stop believing God. He wants to sow unbelief in your heart. And as long as unbelief can take root in your heart, what it will produce will be some of those things. It will eventually lead you down that path. It's kind of inevitable. So although on the surface it might not look like it's harmful, it might look harmless, it might look like today's teachings approach of a carnal mind because I'm not talking, oh, you must not think about fornication or adultery, you must not think about stealing. No. I'm not going to focus on the things that you should not think about. I'm going to focus on the things that you should think about. Because the reality is, when the things that you are thinking about do not align with God's thoughts, even if those things that you are thinking about in and of themselves are not, in quotes, harmful, if you meditate on them and you believe them, they will lead you to unbelief because they will negate what God says about you. And once you stop believing God on an issue, you're going to disobey Him. And that's how people become carnally minded. People become carnally minded when they stop believing God. And that leads to disobedience. And disobedience produces one or more of those works that we've listed in Galatians. So, this is not the end of this chapter. This is just the first eight verses. But from verse 9, Paul starts to talk about other things that are connected to this but are not exactly this. 
But from verse 1 to 8, he really hammers down on making us recognize just what God has done for us through Jesus, but also highlighting how, how we can protect and reap the full benefits of what we've already received. Because unfortunately, a man that isn't walking with God and a man that is not spiritually minded, whose thoughts are not focused on the things of God, might have the life of the Spirit, but will not bear the fruits, will not live out that life. And that's not good. That's not good at all. We're very privileged people. God has really, really done amazing things for humanity. And I believe that the more we understand what he has done, the more we'll be encouraged to live by what he has done. 